Hello, everybody. Welcome to Bochmansier, Chapter 9. I am really excited about this chapter, and I hope for those of you who are binging this, it provides a wee bit of a palate cleanser after last week's harrowing Chapter 8. Uh, it's, it's so amazing in the writing process that there are sometimes bits of a story that are just absolutely so difficult to get out of you. Uh, chapter 8 was one of those. I struggled with that chapter probably longer than almost anything else in the book, whereas Chapter 9 just sort of flowed out as a single piece of writing. Uh, I think it's because these two characters just sort of speak to me. They took on a life of their own so quickly. Uh, before we get started, I just really quickly want to mention that you can help support this podcast by heading over to patreon.com slash strangelywritesbooks. I intend to never run ads on this podcast. I would always like it to be entirely listener supported because let's be honest, you don't want to hear from some author about mattresses or whatever. Anyway, without further ado, let's get into it. Boschmansier, a novel by Strangely Duesberg, read by the author. Chapter 9 Morning is a curious time. When does it actually begin? When the sun comes up? Countless things happen before that, which belong to the day to come. The stirring of bakers and delivery folk, the breakfasting of young professionals, the milking of cows, and the gathering of fishing accoutrements. Often, waiting until the sun comes up results in being late for many things. So then, perhaps the turn of one day into another signals the morning. A day begins, some would say, at midnight. When considered, after midnight doesn't quite seem the best cutoff either, for most of the things that happen just after midnight belong to the darkness and moonlight, the realm of the last gasps of the day previous. Children dream, stars dance, and lovers tryst, while men of ill repute skulk about in alleyways. In just such witching hours as these, Slice goes about most of its business, preferring the deepest parts of the night to the harsh light of day. For all the confusion over when exactly morning begins, we all seem to have agreed upon when it ends. As the clocks strike twelve, it is no longer morning, but afternoon. Kells wakes up, and senses at once that it is still morning, though not a morning she need pay much attention to. Yesterday was the final busking day of her week, and now she has three glorious days to use as she pleases. A sudden recollection of the events of last night returns to her, and she feels a little shiver of excitement as she uncoils herself from the tight ball which is her customary sleeping position. She reaches out an expectant arm and finds only cold emptiness, Quashing faint irritation and feelings even more ridiculous, she stands up. Before her eyes are fully opened, she puts on her spare house coat. The apartment is unheated, as always. Kells pads out of the bedroom to find Eleanor standing on the sofa, looking down, eyes narrowed in concentration. All the furniture has been pushed to the sides of the room, and the floor spread with a most curious assortment of objects. Each one is laid out in neat rows, less than an inch apart from its odd fellows. There are the expected cards, bits of paper, and money, of course. But these are joined by marbles, knives, balls, what looks like a folding typewriter, a bicycle the size of a loaf of bread, rings, pearls, gems, and some sort of miniature terrarium that seems to contain live ants, a wind-up bird, tiny cars, lighters, cigarettes, swords, an old pipe, small bottles of wine, 
a piece of scrimshaw, a functional-looking miniature tea service, and a tiny ivory figurine all sit together. There are minuscule books, packets of spice, and a pair of very serious-looking dueling pistols, in addition to the pair of bang ones Kells had seen the night before. Beyond these lay a small rainbow of pencils in various colors, two notebooks, feathers, leaves, and a box of tea. The more Kells looks, the more there is to see. Eleanor's pockets contain enough things to fill a small curio shop in their own right. Kells wonders what Adlin would make of this collection. How do you fly on airplanes? Eleanor, deep in thought, mumbles. I don't. I never have. I take boats and trains. Kells laughs at this. Of course you do. Eleanor looks up. I'm sorry about the mess. I just realized my coat was filthy and needed to be cleaned and patched, and you'd said it was fine last night, and now I realize I should have asked again. I hope it's all right. Sure. It's amazing to see all of it. You were walking around with all of that? No wonder you don't have a very big suitcase. I suppose I don't. Do you know of a good dry cleaner? I'm sorry. I don't. But Martin let this last night. She walks over to the table by the door and picks up the card for Martin's preferred dry cleaners. It bears a fancy scrollwork design of a person woven from twigs holding a dry cleaning bag. The sheer whimsy of it makes Eleanor laugh as she takes the card from Kells. She feels judged for the state of her clothing, though not too harshly. What a lovely, thoughtful man. He can be quite sweet when he stops worrying about his books and starts noticing other people. Though I feel if I wanted to tell him something, it'd be more worth my time to write it into a book than to say it out loud. So, breakfast? Yes, please. They prepare pancakes together, moving around one another with an easy grace that both feel to be special. Eleanor knows an old recipe that Kells just happens to have all the ingredients for, and she delights in explaining the process. For some reason, it involves an ice cream scoop and a metal colander, also serendipitously available, and seems overcomplicated. There is much guiding of hands and standing very close together, though neither of them seem to be bothered by the difficulties. Coffee there is also, thick and dark, with molasses in lieu of any milk or sugar. The resultant pancakes are the stuff of dreams, large, fluffy creations Eleanor places in stacks for Kells to drizzle reduced sugar over. They sit on the floor, plates balanced on laps, knees touching, breaking their fast in a small empty circle Eleanor has cleared in the ranked bric-a-brac. Nothing is said of the events of last night. Both are reluctant to break the spell. Soon, the plates are empty and set aside. Kells drains the last of her coffee and slaps her knee. So, about that dry cleaners, I say we drop off your coat and go for a walk down to Adlin's for a good long browse. I understand you barely stuck your head in there yesterday. Eleanor nods, chewing her tongue as she tries to gather the last molasses at the bottom of her coffee cup with a just too short finger. Her mouth makes a little mm, noise as she does so. Kells takes the mug. Here, let me. Kells turns her fork around and using the slightly concave bit at the end of the handle, manages to scoop up the molasses and holds it out. Eleanor makes a face like a turtle and slowly bends forward to eat the molasses off the end of the fork. Kells laughs. Eleanor turns serious, leaps to her feet, and moves into the bedroom, pulling on the clothes Kells has laid out for her. So, this dry cleaner, she shouts as Kells clears the dishes. Good at what they do? Trustworthy? I'm not going to spoil the coat it took me years to make? I shouldn't think so. 
Martin trusts them, and that's high praise. You know most of the suits he wears are nearly 100 years old? No. That explains why he looks like something out of a fairy tale of empire, or whatever. I know. I love that about him. Apparently he inherited them from his late grandfather, or great-grandfather, or something like that. He keeps them in a climate-controlled closet and cleans them regularly to keep the moths away. Kells joins her in the bedroom and changes out of her pajamas into a matching outfit with Eleanor. Eleanor makes a face. What? asks Kells wryly. You don't approve? No, I love it. I'm sure we'll turn some heads. That's the idea, I should think. Before the morning has gotten much further along, they arrive at the cleaners. It is a tiny place, in an alley just off a large square. Though she claimed to have little knowledge of local dry cleaners, Kells had walked straight to the shop. When pressed, she'd insisted that she knew the place because it was so close to her office. At this last, she had indicated the square in general. Eleanor found herself suppressing a shudder at the idea of performing in so large a space. The shop is so narrow that Eleanor can almost touch both walls with her outstretched hands. The place is deep, though, fading back into darkness somewhere beyond sight. A long track, with thousands of hooks hanging below it, wends its way along the ceiling through the entire space. Behind the counter, it dips down, allowing the clothing hanging from it to be reached with ease. The particular section of garments at the front of the room just now is red, providing an almost theatrical backdrop for the small, soporific woman who sits there. She is perched atop a wooden stool reading, her legs folded in a lotus position. The book disappears before Eleanor can note the title. Hello, says Eleanor, seeking the perfect balance between friendly and apologetic. She pulls the business card from a pocket and starts to hold it out. The woman snatches the card, her arm like a serpent. After giving it a careful inspection, she lifts it to her face, eyebrows knitted. She sniffs. She frowns, then darts her tongue out to lick it. The woman smiles. Martin, she says. Eleanor nods, explaining that Martin recommended the shop as the best in the whole city. She only trusts the best when it comes to caring for her coat as it is a very special coat indeed. The woman nods, pushing a button under the counter. All of the various items of clothing hanging on the racks behind her begin to move, a long snake of cloth. Most are hung on regular wire hangers, but then a different group comes to the front. These are covered in elegant black felt, the tags written with a fountain pen instead of the usual ballpoint. The woman takes the coat with gentle reverence, mumbling compliments about certain details of note. After hanging up the coat, she writes a receipt on a small slip of parchment and gives it to Eleanor. Pockets are empty, yes? Good. I think you do the sorcery, she says with a smile that would inspire jealousy in a shark. With coat, pockets, pockets, pockets. Eleanor considers before answering. Giving the woman a mysterious smile, she says, After a fashion, I suppose. The woman nods and sits down again, moving to pick up her book. Thank you for coming in. The coat will be ready in two days. Special price for friends of Martin. See you soon. You may leave now. Thank you for your business. Eleanor and Kells exchange a mirthful glance and turn to go outside. Once they are out of sight of the woman, Kells says, My goodness, she's a character. No wonder Martin likes her. Kells pulls a pocket watch out of her vest. Look at the time. I'm feeling a bit peckish. What about you? Where do you fancy? I have no idea where I'd like to eat. I don't know your city at all, says Eleanor. Kells laughs. Well then, how about I treat you to a free lunch? That's awfully nice of you. Where did you have in mind? 
I'm going to do a show right here. And then depending on how that goes, I'll take you someplace. The nicest I can afford. With whatever you can make. Now you're getting it. They have arrived back in the square. Eleanor notes a good number of people walking about, bundled up in coats and scarves. Though a bit chilly, the weather is fine for a show, with bright sunlight giving the whole scene a warm glow. Kells comes to a sudden halt. She turns in a slow circle, examining the square. With a satisfied grunt, she walks with purpose to a spot in front of a shuttered business. Eleanor understands what is about to happen and settles herself on a nearby bollard to watch. From her pocket, Kells produces a piece of chalk which she uses to draw a large circle on the ground, some 25 feet across. This done, an immediate change comes over almost all of the pedestrians passing by. Most start to avoid the circle. The few oblivious ones who do not receive a steady stream of cheeky rebukes and teases from Kells. The little juggler capers about in the circle, doing exaggerated calisthenics, appearing to warm up for something. Her antics soon draw a few curious onlookers, though none of them have yet approached the circle, instead choosing to watch from whatever position they first noticed her. Kells does not let this situation last very long, however. She confidently orders the folks watching to approach her circle and stand with their toes on the line. Some refuse, walking away. Kells cracks jokes at their expense, much to the delight of those who have stayed. A small crowd begins to grow as five people become ten, become twenty. Eleanor soon has to move as her view is obstructed by the people happily jostling to get a closer look. Kells has her hat off, throwing it into the air, higher and higher, while still doing her ridiculous calisthenics now augmented by tumbles and cartwheels. Finally, she tosses the hat as high as she can, does a backflip, lands on her feet, and stands still as the hat lands neatly on her head. Kells snaps her arms out to either side of her and, as if on cue, the onlookers let out a cheer. Kells hushes them like a conductor. Thanks, folks! She says, her voice booming across the square. In the curious fashion of the professional street artist, she is not yelling, yet somehow her voice is greatly magnified. Eleanor also realizes with amusement that Kells has slipped into some sort of accent, reminiscent of a Dickensian street urchin. Now, ladies and gentlemen, she snaps her fingers at one man who seems distracted by something on his phone. Especially you, sir. You wouldn't want to miss this. What? Oh, are you texting a friend to come and watch with you? Oh, it's your wife. Tell me, does she let you text in the theater, too? The crowd is laughing already. It is clear that Kells has a mastery of this sort of thing. She waves the now-laughing man's transgression away and goes on with her show. Folks, I haven't got long to entertain you, and I know you haven't got half as long to watch me, so I'll keep this real quick. I'm going to do one big trick for you all. I'm going to juggle. Oh, yes, juggle. You want to get your money's worth out of this free show, so what I'm going to do is, I'm going to juggle while placing myself in a very precarious position. Yes, sir. A very precarious position. Yes, sir. A very precarious position. So I'm going to need a little help from, hmm, let me see. Ah, yes, you, sir. Kells has selected a large, broad-shouldered man wearing a mechanic's overalls. Clearly a tradesman on lunch. He seems reluctant until she asks the whole crowd to cheer for him. At which point he comes up and, seizing the mood of the moment, takes a little bow. The crowd cheers even louder. Easy now, big fella, it's my show. She claps him warmly on the back, directing him to stand at a certain point in the circle. She asks his name, forgets it at once, and starts calling him Ferdinand. This is very amusing to all present, including the man himself. Kells gets him to go down on all fours to one side of the circle, and then stands on his back, complimenting him all the while on his strength and muscles. Ferdinand is soon joined by Marco, James, and Leif. 
all as Kells puts it, brave, stout-hearted, noble, true, suggestible lads. She positions James and Leaf standing about two feet apart with their arms crossed in front of themselves. Kells has also placed her shoes on their heads, cryptically informing them that this will be important later. Marco is facing toward them while the still-prostrate Ferdinand is just behind him. Now then, folks, we're all set. Kells booms. But first, before I perform this feat so amazing and spectacular, a brief moment of your time. You see, this is how I make my living. Yes, stay in school, kids. The crowd titters. So if, at the completion of this show, you could throw something in my hat here, I'd be most obliged. Remember, folks, the stuff that folds lightens loads. Look, it's very simple. If you like my show, open your wallet, take out a fiver, and put your wallet in my hat, okay? At this point, even Kells can't help but laugh and many in the crowd are exchanging bemused, knowing glances with one another. A deep breath from Kells. Now then, here we go! Quick as lightning, she dashes forward, neatly steps onto Ferdinand's back, and winds up sitting on the very confused Marco's shoulders. Marco, forward! She yells, like a general of old. Nothing happens. Kells lets out a heavy theatrical sigh and reaches down to tap Marco on the shoulder. Marco, I need you to take a step forward. He laughs and moves to comply. The crowd cheers, their laughter building. Kells climbs off Marco's shoulders onto the waiting arms of Leaf and James. She snatches up the shoes and holds the laces in her teeth, bracing one hand on the heads of each of the volunteers. Is this hard, gents? She quips through gritted teeth. Using her hands, she shakes their heads and growls in a childish impersonation of a grown man's voice. No! Could you do this all day? This time, she shakes their heads in the affirmative, growling out a suitably manly response. The crowd roars. Kells takes the shoes from her mouth as she straightens up. All right, folks, we now come to the final moment, the denouement, if you will. I shall now juggle these two shoes and my own hat while standing on these lovely gentlemen. Do you want to see that? This is met with shouts of approval from the adults in the crowd and screams of delight from the children. Kells nods and raises a finger for silence. All right, folks, I'm going to do it on the count of three. Now don't forget to feed the nice circus lady. The crowd chuckles, but soon they are counting along with Kells. One, two, three. Cheers erupt from the spectators as she begins to juggle the three objects, adding a few fancy tosses and catches along the way. Kells neatly catches all three items. The crowd cheers. She tosses her hat high into the air and then bows, seems to unbalance and falls forward toward the pavement. The crowd hushes as she does a flip and lands on her feet. There's a moment of silence, and then her hat lands square on her head again. This time, the crowd's roar is so loud it befits a group thrice their size. Kells pulls the happily befuddled volunteers into a rough line and has them all bow, to even more cheers from the crowd. She walks through the crowd and stands on a bench just at the edge of her circle, loudly talking all the while. Thank you very much, folks. Step right up. Now pushing and shoving. Everyone gets a turn. Let's all feed the nice lady. Thank you very much, little one. Now go back and ask your mummy for more. Goodness me, that's very generous of you. Where are you from? Green Lake? Oh, we got a tenner from Green Lake. Who can beat that? Anybody? Thank you, and thank you. She goes on like this until every single person who wants to has tipped her. Then with a wink at Eleanor, she shouts, All right, folks, last chance to donate. Last chance to go home with a clear conscience. Last chance before the hat goes back on my head and I'm not accepting any more money. Except from you, sir. Nice hat. The man chuckles and waves, but keeps walking. Oh well, Kells mutters. Not everyone's a saint. Eleanor walks over to her. That was lovely. Thank you. I think we... Uh-oh. Kells points, 
Across the square, a sour-faced woman running a little cart selling hideous handicrafts is speaking to a pair of serious-looking men in uniforms. She points at Kells. The little juggler responds by sticking her tongue out at the woman and giving her a thumbs down. Eleanor gasps in mock horror. Oh goodness, well it's been nice knowing you, Kells. I'd say you're in for a long life in prison. Will you write me? Not a chance I ain't gonna catch this dodger most awful. Saying this, Kells seizes Eleanor by the hand and the two are off, dashing out of the square. Already around a corner before the mad vendor can finish decrying Kells' little show. Out of breath from their mirthful escape, Eleanor finally begs for a rest. Kells, still clutching her hat full of money, relents and galumphs to a stop. By some design, they've arrived outside the shattered anchor. Let's stop in here and get a drink while I count and we scheme about where we're going to eat. Eleanor wheezes her assent, and soon they are tucked into a corner table, sipping minuscule cups of delicious coffee. Alrighty then, let's see what we've got. Kells upends the hat on the table. After giving it a shake to dislodge a few stubborn coins, she tosses it up in the air to land square on her head. Eleanor applauds in a reserved fashion, earning a good-natured eye-roll for this cheeky show of disinterest. Kells counts the money with practiced efficiency. Eleanor watches the way her mouth moves as she does, entranced by the unintended action. Nearly 250, Kells announces with pride. And that's not even counting all the metal trash. That's fantastic. Kells tucks the bills into her pocket. Feigning great disgust, she stacks up the smallest bits of change to pay for their coffees. Even though she's paying with nothing but coins, the tip is larger than the bill. She holds up a hand, flips it to show the back and front a few times. With a grin, Kells produces several of the larger coins and adds them to the pile on the table. She studies Eleanor for a moment, then says, Well, you perform. I mean, you must do pretty well. Yes. Well, no, I don't know. Sometimes. But my show isn't like yours. Mine is... smaller. You'll have to perform it for me sometime. I'll see what I can do, though I feel like it would be less than exciting, because you've already seen everything that goes into my pockets all laid out. Ha! As if. Anyone who can put pocket me as well as you did, inside my wallet, nice touch by the way, must have a pretty stonking great show. I don't know. I do my best. My show isn't really a show so much as it's me delivering surprises into people's hands and hearts. Eleanor blushes, feeling this is too much of a conceptual overreach. She sounds so full of herself. Kells, however, finds this charming. I do too. Ugh. Kells grunts in sudden disgust. She rolls her eyes and moves to take her shoes off. What is it? Eleanor asks. Oh, nothing. Just my cross to bear, I guess. Every time I do a show, no matter how careful I am or where I do it, I always seem to get some sand in my shoes. Little bits of road grit, you know the kind. She has her shoes off and is shaking the minuscule particles out on the floor. Eleanor chuckles. Hazards of working the street? Kells nods, her smile wry as she begins working to put her shoes back on. Her tone thoughtful, she asks. Who taught you? I was little, and my uncle? Yes, how did you know? It's always an uncle. But why is it always an uncle? They both pause at this, choosing to stare out the window following the passage of people going to and fro on the street. A cat is stalking pigeons, with little success. Haven't the foggiest, Kells mumbles from very far away. They are holding hands, neither one intending it, both lost in memories more similar than they know. Speaking of things I don't understand, the coffee's already gone. Eleanor stares into her cup and then, almost as an afterthought, passes her hands over it, 
The cup vanishes. Kel snorts with laughter. Eleanor just smiles, secretive. A moment later, she points to Kells' cup, which is now stacked inside her own, both saucers beneath. Kells shakes her head in admiration as Eleanor stands up. Well, lady, shall we? Eleanor offers her arm. Kells pops up and links her own through Eleanor's. They exit the cafe into the blustery street, laughing all the way. Thank you, everybody, so much for listening to this week's episode of Poche I had a lot of fun with this particular chapter as it essentially describes a street show very much like the one I used to perform, although I can't do backflips or catch hats on my head. Well, actually, I can catch a hat on my head, just not in conjunction with a backflip. <laughs> but still, I, I just had so much fun writing this because, I don't know, to get to describe a street show sort of from inside it is, is difficult. So I, I hope you enjoyed sort of getting an inside look at that a little bit. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, this podcast is and will always be entirely listener-supported. So if you're enjoying this story, please consider heading on over to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash strangelywritesbooks. I will put a link to that in the description of this episode on pochemencier.com in case you need uh, a link to click. But consider heading over there and just uh, donating to help this podcast along. If we can sort of build up a community around this podcast, I want to start doing things like live streaming, recording sessions, and also my editing process so you can kind of get an inside look at all of that. I would love to do sort of a Twitch channel thing where you could actually watch video of me as I record these episodes because my face can get very animated and it's a lot of fun when I'm doing character voices and things like that. But seriously, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for listening to this podcast and sharing it with your friends and family. It means so much that people seem to be connecting with my art. I will see you all again next week for Chapter 10, Dinner and a Show.